Good morning, Sun Valley. So good to have you here as we worship the Lord together and now as we worship through hearing the word preached. What a blessing. I'd like you to think of yourself just for a second, if you would, in a federal penitentiary on death row awaiting uh, execution at midnight tonight. Then, with uh, presidential authority, you're granted pardon and freedom to leave the prison immediately. Totally pardoned, 100%. How would you respond? Like this? <laughs> no, you would, you would exult. You would be dancing in the street. You would be cheering and yelling and everything else you would expect and imagine. A presidential pardon means freedom. It means that you are now a normal, regular citizen with all the rights and privileges and no longer condemned to certain death. This great chapter that we're in, Romans 8, begins by declaring something significantly more important than what I just described. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for us. This is why this particular verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, is the favorite of many, many people. It's why this chapter, Romans 8, is considered the greatest section of all of Scripture. That announcement alone is life-altering. To be told that the death sentence from God that once was hanging over our heads has been lifted is the best news anyone has ever heard. We're not talking just about a presidential pardon. We're talking about a divine pardon that's good for time and eternity. And so guess what? We gather weekly to celebrate this announcement. As you would recall, for your entire life, the day that the president pardoned you from death row, we remember every single week all the good things that are included in our divine pardon. That's why we gather here. That's why we rejoice. That's why we're concerned if you're not rejoicing. Although according to chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, we are in a sinfully desperate and lost condition. In chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham's example to illustrate that justification that is being uh, declared not guilty, no condemnation. The, Abraham's life is an example of how God can pull that off through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through works, through faith. And then we get to chapters 5 and 6, we learn how Jesus Christ saves his people. It is through identifying with his life, his death, and his resurrection. The Apostle Paul said that entering the arena of salvation comes by way of a vital union with Jesus Christ by faith. His death pays the penalty of our sin that God requires of each of us, and his perfect life is credited to our account. So now... God not only declares us not guilty, but he sees us as he sees his son. 
perfect. This is a miracle of miracles, isn't it? And so now Paul can confidently say there is no condemnation. But today I want to point out to you the second half of the verse, chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1, rather. Look how the verse ends. For those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's an important condition, isn't it? To avoid God's condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at the beginning of the Bible's most positive chapter here in Romans 8, Paul wants to make sure we know the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. He, he said that those who are in Christ are those who walk by the Spirit, not those who don't. He's talking about the difference between believers and unbelievers, between the justified and the condemned, between those whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit and those whose mind is set on the flesh. This is a critical contrast. Paul wants us to understand it. He, he makes this contrast so that, as he tells, of, tells us of all the blessings awaiting God's children, which is what Romans 8 is all about, we know whether or not he's talking about us. Are all these blessings for me or not? Today we will find out. Today we'll pick up the center section of Romans 8. And this is my goal today, to help you determine whether or not all the blessings of Romans 8, Romans 8 are yours. Is Paul talking about you here in Romans 8? You see, there are only two groups of people. It's very clear here in Romans 8. There's not three groups of people. There isn't the Christian, the non-Christian, and a third group who claim to be Christian but live like pagans. No, there's only two groups. You're either one or the other. There's not some vague middle ground wherein people can exist. The popular carnal Christian category sounds interesting, but it's not biblical. The carnal Christian idea is an unfortunate doctrinal error that has crept into the church and many parachurch organizations over the past 60 years. It is not a biblical concept. Well-meaning Christians have tried to explain how someone who claims to know Christ can continue to live like they don't know him. Instead of calling a spade a spade, they try to accommodate these people's claims, although their lives are full of evidence to the contrary, and give false and even damning assurance to those people who should be called to repentance. Saying a prayer doesn't save you. Attending church doesn't save you. Serving in a local homeless shelter doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. And if he saves you, you change. This is really important. When God justifies you, he also sanctifies you. He never justifies anyone and neglects or forgets to sanctify them. See, sanctification isn't just for a select few. No, that sanctification, which means becoming like Jesus, is for every justified person. Everyone who has been declared not guilty, everyone who can say with Paul, there is now no condemnation of God over me, is in fact sanctified. So... Are you saved? 
If so, then you'll begin to see changes, changes in your life towards Christ-likeness. This is God's truth here this morning. Paul contrasts these two groups so that there's no doubt who they are. By the end of my sermon this morning, we'll get to verse 17, and you should have no doubt in which camp you fall. Paul makes it abundantly clear. Let's, look by, let's, let's start by looking at those who are living in the flesh, those whose condemnation is still hanging over their heads. And this is a group that Paul identifies by living by the flesh. Living by the flesh in Paul's mind is a description of anyone who is living a self-directed life. They're in charge of their own program. They're following their own agenda. It's the person who's committed to themselves, not to God. Instead of living by the power and direction of the Holy Spirit, they reject that way and pursue anything that entertains the self. What determines their daily choices is not God's will and, and what will make much of Jesus, but instead, what will make much of their own fleshly self. This is what verses 5 through 8 reveal. Let's, let me read them for you again, and I want you to look for three marks. Three marks of living by the flesh. Verses 5 through 8 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind of, on the flesh is death, but, set, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you see the three, the three marks of living in the flesh, those things that identify that group? Let's, work, let's look through them. The first is a self-directed mind, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, a self-directed mind. The Bible tells us that the mind of those living by the flesh are absorbed with things that the world would prioritize, the things that are common to those who are not in Christ, they, they are obsessed with the pursuit of what the world can provide. Things like financial comfort, acceptance by powerful and beautiful people, possessions, etc. That's what the world offers. In fact, the world can even provide those things. Those who are living in the flesh are obsessed with those things. That's what their life is all about. This is the bent of fleshly thinking. And of course, this obsession is how their mind works. The only operating system in their minds uh, is, is this fleshly, worldly one. It's an instinct that comes with being human. This is why Paul continually corrects and redirects his readers in his letters to help them remember that they're no longer like that. You used to do that, now you don't. You put off the old and put on the new. You stop thinking about yourself and you start prioritizing others. The flesh versus the spirit. Secondly, we see in these verses, identifying living by the flesh in verses 7 and 8, a self-directed disposition. Not just only a self-directed mind, but a disposition of the heart is the second thing, the second mark. Three dispositions that unbelievers possess in these two verses, um, or truths, you could say, about those who are living in the flesh are as follows. Look at verse 7. 
says they're hostile. That's a disposition of their character towards God. They're hostile, a hatred of God, bitter opposition to God. You might say, well, hold on. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who don't hate God. Maybe Paul's overstating his point. Maybe he's using hyperbole. Well, let's think about this. Is anybody in a neutral state spiritually? Is anybody that you know of have one arm around God and one arm around the world? They may think they do, but do they? Hostility, the way God defines it, are those who are opposed to God, even if their demeanor doesn't show it, their outward demeanor. These people hold active rebellion or, listen, passive indifference, both of which God identifies as hostility. This is important to know. So that, that wonderful neighbor, that old lady who's so sweet and, and brings you cookies sometimes, is hostile to God in her heart if she is not living in the Spirit. That's a hard thing to swallow, isn't it? But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. The self-directed person has no interest in God running their lives. They may even people who attend church every week. Isn't that a scary thought? They only want God on the fringes of their lives and only when it's convenient. They don't want God impeding their agenda or their plans. God is fine if, if he'll just stay in his lane, is the attitude of hostility. The next thing we see in these verses is superiority. Look there in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it, that is the disposition, does not submit to God's law. It's an attitude of superiority, a disposition of superiority based on pride. It doesn't submit to God's law. There, there's no surrender. There's no humility. These refuse to come under the authority of God, refuse his word. I'm not going to submit myself to that. There may be some outward humility, but in their inner being, they are hostile to God and stand in judgment of God and his word. That's not for me. That doesn't make sense. They want to create a God in their own image. And if he's outside of that creation, not wanting to do with that, nothing new with that. As long as God fits their definition, then they're going to agree to kind of go along with that picture. They say things like this, my God would never do that. Or, I don't think that verse means that. They are their own authority, superiority, pride. So much of this attitude is infiltrating the church. It's frightening. They want to do what they want to do. They, they want to form their own opinion of God, their own opinion of doctrine and theology. And they, of course, think their opinions are superior to God's that are revealed right here on the pages. And this comes to bear in so many ways in life. Let me ask you, do you submit to God's will? Are you one who is living by the flesh or living by the spirit? Do you submit to God's revealed will in his word. Let me give you some categories. Parenting. You know that God clearly directs how you ought to parent your children? It's not, it's not vague. It's very clear. Are you submitting to God's will in the matter? Are you submitting to God's will in your marriage relationship? It's not unclear. It's very clear on how we ought to relate to one another as husband and wife. 
Do we submit to God's will as revealed in Scripture concerning our money? It's not confusing in Scripture how we should handle our money. If we're going to follow the Spirit and be in the Spirit, be those in the category of the not condemned, all these things are clearly given in Scripture. Are you submitting to it or are you saying, oh, that's not for me? Are you a smorgasbord Christian that's going to take what you want from here and there and then leave the rest for those people? That's what Paul's talking about here. And then the, th- the third truth, not so much demeanor, but truth that we see in these verses 7 and 8 is inability. Or you could, you know, change the word to impossibility. Let's look at this again in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Now look at the next line. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 8. The unregenerate disposition cannot submit to God even if it wanted to. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Only those who have been born by the Spirit can actually submit to God. God must transform. God must reach out and grab them and conform their will to his because it is so opposed to God. Paul used this word cannot because he didn't mean may not. He said they cannot submit to God. They have an inability. It is impossible for them. The will is in bondage. Evidently, Luther knew what he was talking about. They are in bondage to sin. They are in bondage to the governing principle that Paul details in the sixth chapter of Romans. Inability. And then, next we see, if we're talking about the life lived in the flesh, we see a self-directed destiny in these verses, 5 through 8. Did you see the destiny there? The mindset on the flesh is the person who doesn't know God, doesn't want God. They remain in bondage to their sin. They haven't been set free by the Holy Spirit. The destiny of those with this mindset makes logical sense to us if we just think about it for a second. And what is the destiny? Look at verse 5. It says, but for those who live according to the flesh, their mind is set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, their minds are set on the things of the Spirit. Now, for, or therefore, or to give an explanation of such things, for the mindset on the flesh is death. That's the destiny. And it makes total sense. If you want nothing to do with the life giver, either here or in the future, the only option is death. This is what Paul is saying. This is the only possible outcome. In chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. So when did you become a sinner? When did that start? Well, that's when you experienced this destiny. Yes, you were born dead, spiritually speaking. This is not referring, of course, to physical death, of course, (laughs) Because that's the destiny of everyone. I mean, it'd be real easy to evangelize our neighbors if we could say, hey, you're never going to die physically, just believe this. 
we'd be able to have our churches full. No, each of us has an appointment with death whether or not we're in Christ or not. What Paul's referring to here is spiritual death, that, that separation from God, both here and now and the afterlife, a separation from God, which is in fact what the heart desires those who are hostile and opposed to God. I don't want to be around God, either now or in the future. Like the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 59, verse 2, your sins have made a separation between you, between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. There's a spiritual death to those who walk by the flesh, which we begin at conception. The person who lives according to the flesh is dead even while they are physically alive. They are as unresponsive to God and his word as a corpse would be to you and to me if we were to talk to it. They're spiritually dead. This explains why some people, as smart as they are, don't understand the simple gospel. They're dead. They cannot. It requires the God of the universe to say to them, as he did to Lazarus, come forth. Until that time, they remain dead. They remain in their self-directed life full of disappointment, full of frustration, always looking for ways to fill the void that's in them, always looking for life. They remain dead. William Wilberforce and William Pitt were both English parliamentarians. They were friends. We know Wilberforce, but Pitt's not as well known to us. William Pitt was um, the youngest prime minister ever in England's history. He became prime minister when he was 24. But he and Wilberforce were close friends. And of course, Wilberforce was a committed Christian, and Pitt was a formal religious man, but unsaved. Wilberforce constantly prayed for his friend and constantly took every opportunity to, ex to explain the gospel to Pitt, many times inviting him to church, pleading with him to come and hear the gospel preached. And at one point, Wilberforce actually got Pitt to finally attend a service where a preacher named um, Richard Cecil, who was a great preacher in those days in London, listening to, go listen to one of his sermons. And so they were sitting through this service and Wilberforce was just overflowing with joy and responsiveness while Pitt, on the other hand, was sitting there seeming not hearing anything that was being said. Wilberforce could hardly contain his enthusiasm over the sermon. And as soon as the service ended, he began to just pour all of his excitement and joy over Pitt. And Pitt said the following, You know, Wilberforce, I have no idea what that man has been talking about dead, spiritually dead. That is the condition of everyone until God intervenes. Uh, look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's what Paul's saying. If you live like a non-Christian, your destiny will be the same as a non-Christian. He's not saying that if you're a true Christian, you can lose your salvation. That's obvious. He's simply saying that if you live like a non-Christian, you are a non-Christian and your destiny will be the same as a non-Christian. Death. 
So don't believe the false teaching that there's some middle ground here that you can float in as a carnal Christian, just needing a deeper understanding or, or more commitment, and finally putting Jesus on the throne of your life. That's baloney. You either live by the Spirit or you live by the flesh. You're either in Christ or you're not. I want you to just take a step back and, and look at verses 5 through 9, just from a bird's eye view. Are you looking? The first half of verse 5 and 6 and all of verses 7 and 8 refer to unbelievers who live according to the flesh. The second half of verse 5 and 6 and the first half of verse 9 refers to the believers who walk according to the Spirit. These are two distinct groups. That's all there is in these verses. Paul is contrasting those who live in the flesh and those who live in the Spirit. So now let's look at this second half of the contrast, living by the Spirit. The description that Paul gives of someone who is in Christ and possessed by the Holy Spirit is the opposite in every way of the worldly, fleshly person. These verses clearly demonstrate that. It's the opposite of those who are enslaved by the worldly system, who are living a self-directed life. I want you to look again, and if you have a writing utensil, I want you to write in your Bibles. I want to point out to you the important word in these verses that highlight the contrast. Look with me, starting in verse 5. For if those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but, there's the contrast, that's the word you circle or underline. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but, circle or underline, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 9, you, however, circle the word however, it's an adversative, right? You are not in the flesh, but, underline that word again. You're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 10. Okay, but let's go back to verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, verse 10. But, contrasting, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Jump down to verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Then verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is there a more clear distinction anywhere in Scripture between us and them? Between the saved and the unsaved? The justified and the condemned? No. It is crystal clear in the verses I just read to you. Examining these contrasts that Paul lays out clarifies what a true Christian really is. This is how they think. This is how they live. Not like that. Not like they used to. First thing we see in verse 5 is, connected to the first, but, is a spirit-directed mind. It demonstrates that a true believer isn't 
self-directed in his thinking, but is spirit-directed, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God-directed. Their minds are set on the things of the Holy Spirit. When we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, everything changes, Paul is saying. We don't live for the flesh on Monday through Saturday and then live for the Spirit on Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. Everything changes. The whole week changes. An authentic Christian is, isn't just some really religious person. You know, because being religious and having a mindset on the things of the Spirit are two radically different things. Religion or religiosity is external. Having your mindset on the things of the Spirit is internal. And when you come to Christ by faith, this change takes place and it begins on the inside. Religion is external. Having your mindset on the things of the Spirit is internal. And you cannot live in both realms. We were born into the realm of the flesh, but when we were regenerated, we are transferred to the realm of the Spirit and we begin to think and act and talk like Jesus. Having a mind set on the things of the Spirit isn't about being religious, nor is it about holding right theological opinions. Hear me. It's not about being religious or holding right theological opinions. It isn't just agreeing that you're a sinner. I mean, just go back 24 hours, go back 24 minutes, and we can all agree that we're sinners, right? It's not even agreeing that Jesus is God. There are many people who would say that. So it is possible to confess these type of theological important things and yet remain unsaved. Not be a true Christian. Being an authentic believer is more than giving a verbal assent to certain doctrines. It requires that you be born again, which is a work of God. This transformation that happens the minute we are converted by God, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, has immediate and progressive elements to it. Which is why Paul concludes this letter beginning in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, the way he does. He says this, concerning our transformation. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, based on all that I've said, up to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Live like Jesus, which is the spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where it begins. That's, that's, your mind is changed by the Holy Spirit of God at the point of regeneration, and it continues to be transformed, molding and shaping more and more so that your thinking, which guides your actions and conduct, becomes more like Jesus. At the moment of that conversion, the Holy Spirit of life sets you free from the power of sin and death and begins that process immediately, but lasts a lifetime. Look at verse 12 with me. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. All right, now, we know what a debtor is. Most of us are debtors. We have mortgages, car payments, etc. We owe people money because they gave us something. What do we owe God because of what he's given us? 
not to live according to the flesh. We're debtors to God on that part. What Paul is saying is that an authentic Christian has an obligation to abstain from living in the flesh and instead living by the Spirit. We have a vital union with Jesus and it ought to mean something. We have his Holy Spirit living within us. We've been freed from the regulating principle of sin and death and now we are to move on living for Christ on a daily basis, hour by hour, minute by minute. God has accomplished all of these things for us who are in Christ. Our response to these things is to live for him, to make much of Jesus. You've been declared not guilty. You're free to leave the prison. Very few of us would say, no, I like it here. The food's great. We would go running out of that place, hoping that they didn't make a mistake. This is the logical conclusion about a right response to God's grace in our lives. I'm going to live for Jesus now. Look what he has done for me. There is now therefore no condemnation, so stop living like there is. Secondly, we see a spirit-directed disposition. Spirit-directed mind, spirit-directed disposition, attitude. We see this in the contrast verse in, in verse 9. You, however, are not like this. All right, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. You're not hostile. You're not superior. You're not indifferent to the things of God. Your disposition has been changed along with your status, along with your mind. You, however, what amazing contrast. You're no longer like that. Our new disposition is the opposite of what it used to be. We are now humble, dependent, submissive, joyful, content, fulfilled. All these things that come with knowing Christ. We are given a new desire to align our agenda with God's. We have a new desire to please him instead of pursuing self. You, however, are different, Paul says in verse 9. Our new God-given disposition changes how we think, how we live. We retain certainly the flesh and give into it on occasion, right? But we don't live there. It's no longer our habitat. We are, we are not straddling the fence. We don't have an arm around the world and one around Jesus. No, this third category doesn't exist. The reason Paul is stressing this point is that there are only two distinct groups of people in the world. Those with the Spirit and those without Him. We've been given a new nature, a new mind. We have a new disposition towards God. And here, finally, a certain and wonderful destiny. Let's look at this together. A Spirit-directed destiny. These two groups, of course, those living by the flesh and those living by the Spirit, have drastically different places that they find themselves in. Their destinies are profoundly and gravely different. Paul's words are not just intended to be a great source of encouragement to those of us who are in Christ and under, no longer under God's condemnation, but also, hear me, a call to repentance. A call to repentance for those who are not in Christ, who aren't living by the Spirit. Those living by the flesh and in death, those living by the Spirit. What's it say in verse 6? living a life of life and peace. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but 
to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This is the description of every true believer. But those who live according to the spirit are spiritually alive and can look forward to and currently experience eternal life. Peace with God, Romans 5.1. So let's look at the destiny of Holy, the Holy Spirit has for us who are in Christ. Our destiny, of course, as genuine believers, doesn't begin at some point in the future. This is hard for us sometimes, even as solid Christians, to understand. You know, I have eternal life. I can't wait to start experiencing that someday. Jesus said, you have eternal life, present tense. That's how Paul wants us to think. Our destiny begins the moment the Holy Spirit of God uh, transforms our heart. The minute that, that God justifies us by our faith in Jesus Christ when he stamps not guilty on our souls, that's the moment when we, we begin to experience our destiny. Verses 14 through 17 describes this. Look at it with me again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Wow, what a destiny. Not only do we get out of prison, we're handed the greatest mansion on the hilltop. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and yet, here it is, in black and white. We, these verses tell us that we've moved from being rebels to being sons. What? Yeah, no longer rebels, no longer living in fear, but sons of God. From, from being condemned, what's it say in verse 17? From being under condemnation to being heirs? Are you serious? You, you, you go from death row to inheriting everything there is to inherit in anybody's bank account? We, we, we move... According to verse 6, 10, and 11, and 14 through 17, we move from death to eternal life. What in the world, Paul? This is an unbelievable destiny. It comes by those who are living in the Spirit. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are his brother or sister, according to Hebrews. If you were in Christ, you were a son or a daughter of the king. If you were in Christ, you were a fellow heir with Christ. The sons and daughters of God stand to inherit all that belongs to the Father. And everything that belongs to the Father is given to the Son and his brothers and sisters and to all the children of God. All of heaven and earth, all kingdoms, all power, everything is granted to those who are in the Spirit. So let's close with this application, or these four application points. 
I want you to, for a moment, have some self-examination. Am I in the flesh or in the spirit? Paul's made it clear there's a distinction here. Can I look at my life and say, yeah, I'm in the, fl- I'm in the spirit. I, I'm not in the flesh any longer. I'm not saying that you look at your life and you're saying, yeah, I'm perfect. That's not the case with any of us. That's why Paul's writing this. <laughs> no, but I, am I in Christ or am I in Adam? Am I in and of the world? Is, is the world more important to me than Christ? Do I have evidence in my life of being in the Spirit? You see, Paul here has drawn a very clear line in the sand. And which side are you on? Have you been born again? Have you been born of the Spirit? As Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3, verses 6 and 7. And if so, when did that happen? You see, you don't become a Christian by osmosis, by sitting in this room long enough, by reading enough A.W. Tozer. That's not how you become a Christian. You become a Christian by the Holy Spirit of God converting your soul, regenerating your heart. Have you been born again? When did that happen? It can happen right where you sit right now. Secondly, I want you to consider self-renunciation besides self-examination. Consider self-renunciation. Are you daily putting off the flesh? Are you in the battle? Or are you just kind of floating downstream with everybody else on the planet? Are you actively joining the work of the Holy Spirit to mortify this sin that's a residual effect of being born human that remains in your, or are you just giving into it? Are you denying yourself or not? Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself daily. It's a daily battle. Thirdly, self-presentation. Self-examination, self-renunciation, self-presentation. Having renounced the old way, we must present ourselves to Christ as a faithful follower. It's not enough just to say, I'm not going to live by the flesh any longer. We need to follow through on that and complete the cycle, complete the, the, the equation, and say, I'm going to present myself to Christ. I'm going to live for him today, starting right now. My attitude and dispositions will change. See, our new life is filled with intentional and regular obedience. This requires a presentation to God. I am yours. We must aim to please God daily. We must be saturating our hearts and minds with his word. We must be intentionally working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said in Philippians 2, not working for your salvation, working it out, working it into every part of your life. Does the gospel impact how you live at home, how you live at work, how you Behave yourself in the community. This is what we work towards, those of us who are in the spirit. We must be making our lives a daily living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then finally, self-submission. Many of us in this room have, in fact, submitted ourselves to Christ. 
But can I tell you, it's, it needs to be a daily submission. It's not just a one-time submission, one-time prayer that you did 30, 20, 30 years ago. No, it's a daily submission. But it is a submission, and it does have a starting point. Maybe you've never actually submitted yourself wholly to God. Maybe you've gotten used to being a social Christian who can fit in externally because this is a nice group of people who wouldn't want to be with you folks, right? I like these guys. That's social Christianity. That isn't saving Christianity. You see, we need to mark a place in our walk through life when we've given our life to Christ. When we can tell there's a break from the power of sin and death. When there's a break from the self and a joining to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so my exhortation to you in this room who have never experienced submission or who have not submitted to them, themselves to Christ today is to believe Romans, to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ, your Savior. That's the call. If you find yourself in Christ this morning, you need to come back next week and hear of all the wonderful things God has for us who are walking by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we celebrate the decree of no condemnation. Father, we thank you that you made that decree over us because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our souls. If there is someone in this room this morning who has yet to submit themselves to Christ and his Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you would do a miraculous work of grace, that you would grant mercy to that soul and conform them beginning right now to the image of Jesus Christ, that they would be able to embrace this wonderful truth found in verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Oh, God, make that be true of each and every one of us. Bless us now. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we go our way, endeavoring to consistently, intentionally live by the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.